y'all. It's Monday. You're virtually in Miss B's room. Um, and I've been telling you little cutesy scenarios of things that I do in class, but I just wanted to remind you guys of that time that somebody set the bathroom on fire. Remember when that was our biggest problem? Those were the good old days. Anyway, welcome back to Miss B's room. I mean, virtually Miss B's room. I swear I planned this. I'm Miss B, and this is virtually Miss B's room. Today's poem is coming out of fifth period and is emulating Emily Dickinson's A Light Exists in Spring. A light exists in me when in the grass I am the most I can be. Life and peace surround alone within myself. I feel the earth as it absorbs me. When we meet again, I will be one with the earth that claims me as one. Fret not, for I will be back, but not as you remember. I will be stronger down in December. The thing that I enjoyed most about this piece is how clear of an emulation it is of Emily Dickinson. We have like that same, um, I don't know, the same sort of like rhythm that Dickinson has in that poem. Um, I also really like the change from a light exists in spring to a light exists in me. That strikes me as super transcendental, so I really enjoyed that poem. Again, I have a big old stack of these things and I'm gonna keep reading them, so if you're like, but my poem, Miss B, listen, I've got it, kiddo, don't worry. Okay, so last week we read chapters three and four, and I asked you guys to tell me what we know about Chris or to draw me a picture, and then to tell me what things you would take with you on your journey if you were taking a journey with Chris McCandless. So I've got your answers all in a row here, and we shall talk about them. So the first one I have is a drawing of Chris McCandless, and I'm going to include these in the description. I'm going to include a link uh, so you can click that and take a look at what uh, the drawings that we have, um, and they're so funny and I love them. Um, so we have a drawing of Chris. Um, he's got curly hair and his horse teeth, <laughs> and uh, we've got his glasses, which is perfect. He does wear glasses. He's nearsighted. Okay, and then we've got the list of things. A tent. If I get lost in the woods, I want weather protection, a filter straw, flint and steel, a water bottle. Oof, I didn't even think about that one. Of course you have to have a water bottle. And this person was like, you know what, Miss B? I do need a machete. Okay, so we've got a survivalist on our hands over here. And a lot of you guys actually went that way. You're like, I'm going to list out all of the survival, survival materials that I need. This person... Um, said that they would take a big machete so that she could kill whatever comes her way, a lighter so she could cook any animals that she gets, a sleeping bag, toothbrushes, and sunscreen. So very logical thinking here. And then we've got like a really, really good um, long list of Chris's characteristics and page numbers. Thank you, you. This is detailed. Um, he's a small man. A hard worker, he looks kind of Greek, he's expressionless, he has oversized grins, horse-like teeth, steel-rimmed glasses, a hungry look, he's ethical, he's intelligent, he reads a lot, he's smart, 
um, they were, he was thinking about going to law school and he's stubborn. Ugh, all of those are really, really good character details about Chris. Or descriptions, I should say. Okay. Oh, we've got another picture of Chris here. He looks kind of smug and I like that. Um, he's resourceful. He makes a journal, uh, that has, like, good, useful information. That was the cat. Don't worry about that. He likes Jack London. He really loves Jack London. He was inspired by Thoreau. He was non-materialistic, donates money. He's so non-material, non-materialistic. Not only does he donate money, he burns money. He wants freedom, generally charismatic. Most people uh, he, meet on the road, he meets on the road likes him. That's exactly right. He is a very likable dude. Um, okay. And then we have the things that she would take with her. Art supplies and paper. She can't survive without those. A book, Mary Hot- Harry Potter, or some- she needs something to do. Her flute and music, so she could finally get some practicing done. And a blanket, because it's warm. And then some Legos. Could be interesting, because you can always make new stuff. Yes, so this is kind of like along the lines of things that I was thinking of. Like, what things would you take to entertain you? Um, so my list is like hers. Um, and then we have... Um, this person who said this funny thing that I sincerely enjoyed. Me. Is this optional? Also me. Screw it, I want to do it anyhow. Thank you for that. Uh, yeah, me too. I mean, this is non-optional for me, but I get excited to make this podcast for you guys. I like, I like working and like, this stuff is like all up to me. It's not like handed down. Like I get to choose what I'm doing for you now. And that kind of freedom is a little bit, um, exciting. And it's kind of relieving if I'm being completely honest. Okay. So what he would bring a hygiene product for obvious reasons. I'm going to assume products like all of the things. Good call. A backpack to carry stuff. Um, some rubber banded pictures of those special to me. Yep, like a stack of pictures. I love that. A second or third pair of shoes and clothes. Um, you know what they say. Two is one, and one is none. A sleeping bag and hammock. Yep. Okay, and then our description of Chris. Chris or Alex explores the southern U.S. finding beauty in all things nature. He also meets many people, hospitable or not, and learns more ways to deal with life and dwell on the past less. This sounds like you read ahead, my dude, which is totally fine. And it's actually like a really perfect lead into the chapters that we're going to be reading today, five and six, where we're going to learn um, some more about the people that he meets and his interactions with society while he's on his way. Um, okay, I also wrote out, uh, a list of things that I would take with me. I would take, I've got, like, this huge anthology of poetry, and I would take that. It's really big. Um, a couple of reasons. If I had to use it to start fires, I could. It's, like, huge. It's really, like, massive. Um, like, imagine, like, a book that's, like, five inches. It's really, really huge. Um, I would get the, I would bring the survival knife that my little brother got me. It's got, like, flint and, um, some, like, paracord wrapped around the handle. It's like a survival knife type deal. I would take my ukulele with me so I would have something to do. 
um, a notebook and pencil so I could write and a camera, just like Chris did, so I could take pictures. Okay, so that is our recap. Just kidding, that's not our recap. So in the first couple of chapters, where's my copy of the book? Where, 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 where? There it is. Okay, in the first couple of chapters, we see Chris um, towards the end of his journey, like walking into, walking into the wilderness. Then we read about the finding of his body. And then we find out about like the very, very beginning after he left Atlanta. Um, he took his car and it ended up stuck in the desert. And then we left him. We left him after he boated down. He like took like this little metal boat down into Mexico. Okay. Okay, so I read ahead for these episodes, so I have the questions prepared before I read them, which I think is going to be pretty helpful. So you can go ahead and get onto Google Classroom and open up the questions so you can answer them as we go if you like, um, or you can just do it the way that we have been doing it and do it after. So what we're going to be looking for in Chapter 5 is what Chris does that aligns with Transcendental Thought and what he does that seems to contradict it. So we're going to be looking for the places where he's in line and out of line with transcendentalism. So you can like pull in um, evidence from other chapters, that's just fine. But I think that was particularly relevant for chapter five. Okay, chapter five begins on page 38. Chapter five, Bullhead City. And our epigraph reads, The dominant primordial beast was strong in Buck, and under the fierce conditions of trail life it grew and grew, yet it was a secret growth. His newborn cunning gave him poise and control. Jack London, The Call of the Wild. All hail the dominant primordial beast, and Captain Ahab too. Alexander Supertramp, May 1992. Graffito found inside the abandoned bus on the Stampede Trail. Okay, so just like with all the epigraphs, we're going to be looking for the reflection of those ideas in the chapter. So this idea that there's like the primordial beast within. And we know that Alex slash Chris was thinking that himself because he wrote it inside of the bus where he ultimately died. When his camera was ruined and McCandless stopped taking photographs, he also stopped keeping a journal, a practice he didn't resume until he went to Alaska the next year. Not a great deal is known, therefore, about where he traveled after, part after departing Las Vegas in May 1991. From a letter McCandless sent to Jan Burris, we know that he spent July and August on the Oregon coast, probably in the vicinity of Astoria, where he complained that the fog and rain was often intolerable. In September, he hitched down U.S. Highway 101 into California, mm -hmm. then headed east into the desert again. 
and by early October he had landed in Bullhead City, Arizona. Bullhead City is a community in the oxymoronic late 20th century idiom. Lacking a discernible center, the town exists as a haphazard scrawl of subdivisions and strip malls, stretching for eight, eight or nine miles along the banks of the Colorado, directly across the river from the high-rise hotels and casino of Laughlin, Nevada. Bullhead's distinguishing civic feature is the Mojave Valley Highway, four lanes of asphalt lined with gas stations and fast food franchises, chiropractors and video shops, auto parts outlets, and tourist traps. On the face of it, Bullhead City doesn't seem like the kind of place that would appeal to an adherent of Thoreau and Tolstoy, an ideologue who expressed nothing but contempt for the bourgeois trappings of mainstream America. McCandless nevertheless took a strong liking to Bullhead. Maybe it was his affinity for the Lumpen, who were well represented in the community's trailer parks and campgrounds and laundromats. Perhaps he simply fell in love with the stark desert landscape that encircles the town. So I looked up what the word Lumpen means, and it is a Marxist description of working class people who are unaware of... Um, their own oppression. So it's kind of like the mindless working class. In any case, when he arrived in Bullhead City, McCandless stopped moving for more than two months, probably the longest he stayed in one place from the time he left Atlanta until he went to Alaska and moved into the abandoned bus on the Stampede Trail. In a card he mailed to Westerberg in October, he says of Bullhead, it's a good place to spend the winter, and I might finally settle down and abandon my tramping life for good. I'll see what happens when spring comes around, because that's when I tend to get really itchy feet. At the time he wrote these words, he was holding down a full-time job, flipping quarter-pounders at a McDonald's on the main drag, commuting to work on a bicycle. Outwardly, he was living a surprisingly conventional existence, even going so far as to open a savings account at a local bank. Curiously, when McCandless applied for the McDonald's job, he presented himself as Chris McCandless, not as Alex, and gave his employers his real social security number. It was an uncharacteristic break from his cover that might easily have alerted his parents to his whereabouts, although the lapse proved to be of no consequence because the private investigator hired by Walt and Billy never caught the slip. Two years after he sweated over the grill and bullhead, his colleagues at the Golden Arches didn't recall much about Chris McCandless. One thing I do remember is that he had a thing about socks, said the assistant manager, a fleshy, garrulous man named George Driesen. He always wore shoes without socks, just plain couldn't stand to wear socks. But McDonald's has a rule that employees have to wear appropriate footwear at all times. That means shoes and socks. Chris would comply with the rule, but as soon as his shift was over, bang, the first thing he'd do is peel those socks off. I mean, the very first thing. Kind of like a statement to let us know we didn't own him, I guess. But he was a nice kid and a good worker, real dependable. Lori Zarza, the, the second assistant manager, has a somewhat different impression of McCandless. Frankly, I was surprised he ever got hired, she says. He could do the job, he cooked in the back, but he always worked at the same slow pace, even during the lunch rush, no matter how much you'd get on him to hurry it up. Customers would be stacked ten deep at the counter, and he wouldn't understand why I was on his case. He just didn't make the connection. It was like he was off in his own universe. He was reliable, though, a body that showed up every day so they didn't dare fire him. 
They only paid four twenty-five an hour, and with all the casinos right across the river starting people at six twenty-five, well, it was hard to keep bodies behind the counter. I don't think he ever hung out with any of the employees after work or anything. When he talked, he was always going on about trees and nature and weird stuff like that. We all thought he was missing a few screws. When Chris finally quit, Zarza admits, it was probably because of me. When he first started working, he was homeless, and he'd show up for work smelling bad. It wasn't up to McDonald's standards to come in smelling the way he did. So finally they delegated me to tell him that he needed to take a bath more often. Ever since I told him there was a clash between us. And then the other employees, they were just trying to be nice. They started asking him if he needed some soap or anything. That made him mad, you could tell. But he never showed it outright. About three weeks later, he just walked out the door and quit. McCandless had tried to disguise the fact that he was a drifter living out of a backpack. He told his fellow employees that he lived across the river in Laughlin. Whenever they offered him a ride home after work, he made excuses and politely declined. In fact, during his first several weeks in Bullhead, McCandless camped out in the desert at the edge of town. Then he started squatting in a vacant mobile home. The latter arrangement, he explained in a letter to Jan Burris, came about this way. One morning I was shaving in a restroom when an old man came in and observing me asked me if I was sleeping out. I told him yes and it turned out that he had this old trailer I could stay in for free. The only problem is that he doesn't really own it. Some absentee owners are merely letting him live on their land here in another little trailer he stays in. So I kind of have to keep things toned down and stay out of sight because he isn't supposed to have anybody over here. It's really quite a good deal though. For the inside of the trailer is nice. It's a house trailer, furnished with some electric sockets working and a lot of living space. The only drawback is this old guy, whose name is Charlie, is something of a lunatic and it's rather difficult to get along with him sometimes. Charlie still lives at the same address, in a small teardrop-shaped camping trailer sheathed in, in rust-pocked tin, without plumbing or electricity, tucked behind the much larger blue-and-white mobile home where McCandless slept. Denuded mountains are visible to the west, towering sternly above the rooftops of adjacent double-wides. A baby blue Ford Torino rests on blocks in the unkempt yard, weeds sprouting from its engine compartment. The ammonia reek of human urine rises from a nearby oleander hedge. Chris? Chris? Charlie barks, scanning porous memory banks. Oh yeah, him. Yeah, yeah, I remember him, sure. Charlie, dressed in a sweatshirt and khaki work pants, is a frail, nervous man with roomy eyes and a growth of white stubble across his chin. By his recollection, McCandless stayed in the trailer about a month. Nice guy, yeah, pretty nice guy, Charlie reports. Didn't like to be around too many people, though. Temperamental. He meant good, but I think he had a lot of complexes. You know what I'm saying? Like to read books by that Alaska guy, Jack London. Never said much. He'd get moody. Wouldn't like to be bothered. Seemed like a kid who was looking for something, looking for something. Just didn't know what it was. I was like that once, but then I realized what I was looking for. Money! Ha! Ha! Yeah, oh boy. But like I was saying, Alaska, yeah, he talked about going to Alaska. Maybe to find whatever it was he was looking for. Nice guy, seemed like one anyway. He had a lot of complexes sometimes, though. Had him bad. When he left, was around Christmas, I think. He gave me 50 bucks and a pack of cigarettes for letting him stay here. Thought that was mighty decent of him. In late November, 
McCandla sent a postcard to Jan Burris in the care of a post office box in Nyland, a small town in California's Imperial Valley. That card we got in Nyland was the first letter from him in a long time that had a return address on it, Burris remembers. So I immediately wrote back and said we'd come see him the next weekend in Bullhead, which wasn't that far from where we were. McCandless was thrilled to hear from Jan. I am so glad to find you both alive and sound, he explained in a letter dated December 9th, 1991. Thanks so much for the Christmas card. It's nice to be thought of this time of year. I'm so excited to hear that you will be coming to see me. You're welcome any time. It's, a real, it's really great to think that after almost a year and a half, we shall be meeting again. He closed the letter by drawing a map and giving detailed directions for finding the trailer on Bullhead City's Baseline Road. Four days after receiving this letter, however, as Jan and her boyfriend Bob were preparing to drive up for the visit, Burroughs returned to their campsite one evening, one evening to find a big backpack leaning against our van. I recognized it as Alex's. Our little dog, Sonny, sniffed him out before I did. She'd liked Alex, but I was surprised that she remembered him. When the dog found him, she went nuts. McCandless explained to Burris that he'd grown tired of Bullhead, tired of punching a clock, tired of the plastic people he worked with, and decided to get the hell out of town. Jan and Bob were staying three miles out of Nyland, at a place the locals call the Slabs, an old Navy airbase that had been abandoned and razed leaving a grid of empty concrete foundations scattered far and wide across the desert. Come November, as the weather turns cold across the rest of the country, some 5,000 snowbirds and drifters and sundry vagabonds con congregate in this otherworldly setting to live, on the to live on the cheap under the sun. The Slavs functions as the seasonal capital of a teeming itinerant society, a tolerant, rubber-tired culture comprising the retired, the exiled, the destitute, the perpetually unemployed. Its constituents are men and women and children of all ages, folks on the dodge from collection agencies, relationships gone sour, the law or the IRS, Ohio winters, the middle-class grind. When McCandless arrived at the Slabs, a huge flea market slash swap meet was in full swing out in the desert. Burris, as one of the vendors, had set up some folding tables displaying cheap, mostly second-hand goods for sale, and McCandless volunteered to oversee her large inventory of used paperback books. He helped me a lot, Burris acknowledges. He watched the table when I needed to leave, categorized all the books, made a lot of sales. He seemed to get a real kick out of it. Alex was big on the classics. Dickens, H.G. Wells, Mark Twain, Jack London. London was his favorite. He tried to convince every snowbird who walked by that they should, that they should read Call of the Wild. McCandless had been infatuated with London since childhood. London's fervent condemnation of capitalist society, his glorification of the primordial world, his champion, championing of the great unwashed. All of it mirrored McCandless's passions. Mesmerized by London's turgid portrayal of life in Alaska and the Yukon, McCandless read and reread The Call of the Wild, White Fang, To Build a Fire, An Odyssey of the North, The Wit of Porpetuk. He was so enthralled by these tales, however, that he seemed to forget that they were works of fictions, constructions of the imagination that had more to do with London's romantic sensibilities than with the actualities of life in the subarctic wilderness. McCandless conveniently overlooked the fact that London himself had spent just a single winter in the north, and that he'd, 
that he died by his own hand on his California estate at the age of 40. A fatuous drunk, obese and pathetic, maintaining a sedentary existence that bore scant resemblance to the ideals he espoused in print. Among the residents of the Nyland Slabs was a 17-year-old named Tracy, and she fell in love with McCandless during his week-long visit. She was this sweet little thing, says Burris, the daughter of a couple of tramps who parked their rig four vehicles down from us. And poor Tracy developed a hopeless crush on Alex. The whole time he was in Nyland, she hung around making goo-goo eyes at him, bugging me to convince him to go on walks with her. Alex was nice to her, but she was too young for him. He couldn't take her seriously. Probably left her broken-hearted for a whole week at least. Even though McCandless rebuffed Tracy's advances, Burris made it clear that he was no recluse. He had a good time when he was around people. A real good time. In the swap meet, he'd talk and talk and talk to everybody who came by. He must have met six or seven dozen people in Nyland, and he was friendly with every one of them. He needed his solitude at times, but he wasn't a hermit. He did a lot of socializing. Sometimes I think he was, it was like he was storing up company for the times when he knew nobody would be around. McCandless was especially attentive to Burris, flirting and clowning with her at every opportunity. He liked to tease me and torment me, she recalls. I'd go out back and hang clothes on the line behind the trailer and he'd attach clothespins all over me. He was playful like a little kid. I had puppies and he was always putting them under laundry baskets to watch them bounce around and yelp. He'd do it till I got mad at him and have to yell at him to stop, but in truth, he was real good with the dogs. They'd follow him around, cry after him, want to sleep with him. Alex just had a way with animals. One afternoon, while McCandless was tending the book table at the Nyland swap meet, somebody left a portable electronic organ with Burroughs to sell on consignment. Alex took it over and entertained everybody all day playing it, she says. He had an amazing voice. He drew quite a crowd. Until then, I never knew he was musical. McCandless spoke frequently to the denizens of the slabs about his plans for Alaska. He did calisthenics each morning to get in shape for the rigors of the bush and discussed backcountry survival strategies at length with Bob, a self-styled survivalist. Me, says Burris, I thought Alex had lost his mind when he told us about his great Alaskan odyssey, as he called it. But he was really excited about it, couldn't stop talking about the trip. Despite prodding from Burris, however, McCandless revealed virtually nothing about his family. I'd ask him, Burris says, have you let your people know what you're up to? Does your mom know you're going to Alaska? Does your dad know? But he'd never answer. He'd just roll his eyes at me, get peeved, tell me to quit trying to mother him. And Bob would say, leave him alone, he's a grown man. I'd keep at it until he'd change the subject, though, because of what happened between me and my own son. He's out there somewhere, and I'd want someone to look after him like I tried to look after Alex. The Sunday before McCandless left Nyland, he was watching an NFL playoff game on the television in Burris's trailer when she noticed he was rooting especially hard for the Washington Redskins. So I asked him if he was from the D.C. area, she says, and he answered, yeah, actually I am. That's the only thing he ever let on about his background. The following Wednesday, McCandless announced it was time for him to be moving on. He said he needed to go to the post office in Salton City, 50 miles west of Nyland, to which he'd asked the manager of the Bullhead McDonald's to send his final paycheck, general delivery. He'd accepted Burris's offer to drive him there, and when she tried to give him a little money for helping out at the swap meet, she recalls, he acted real offended. I told him, man, you gotta have money to get along in this world, but he wouldn't take it. 
Finally, I got him to take some Swiss Army knives and a few belt knives. I convinced him they'd come in handy in Alaska and that he could maybe trade them for something down the road. After an extended argument, Burroughs also got McCandless to accept some long underwear and other warm clothing she thought he'd need in Alaska. He eventually took it to shut me up, she laughs. But the day after he left, I found most of it in the van. He pulled it out of his pack when we weren't looking and hid it under the seat. Alex was a great kid, but he could really make me mad sometimes. Although Burroughs was concerned about McCandless, she assumed he'd come through in one piece. I thought he'd be fine in the end, she reflects. He was smart. He'd figured out how to paddle a canoe down to Mexico, how to hop freight trains, how to score a bed at an inner city at inner city missions. He figured all of that out on his own. I felt sure he'd figure out Alaska too. Okay, that's the end of chapter five. So we've learned some new things about Chris, about the way he lived, and we also learned that there's this chunk of his journey missing, that he was maybe in Oregon and we don't have any notes from there, which I think is interesting because I don't think I ever picked that up in the many, many, many times I've read this book before. So your questions are, what does he do that's in line with transcendental thought? And what does he seem to do that contradicts it? Um, so go ahead, take a minute, answer those questions. So for chapter six, what we're going to be looking at is how Chris feels about and interacts with society and solitude. And these are kind of like really big questions about this book. And I think ones that are like particularly relevant now that um, we're experiencing isolation from society in a way that most of us never have before. I certainly haven't. So this is what we're going to be looking at. How is Chris contending with being alone and being with others? How does it seem like he feels about those things? Chapter 6. Anza Borrego. No man ever followed his genius till it misled him. Though the result were bodily weakness, yet perhaps no one can say that the consequences were to be regretted for these were a life in conformity to higher principles. If the day and the night are such that you greet them with joy, and life emits a fragrance like flowers and sweet-scented herbs, is more elastic, more starry, more immortal, that is your success. All nature is your congratulation, and you have cause momentarily to bless yourself. The greatest gains and values are farthest from being appreciated. We easily come to doubt if they exist. We soon forget them. They are the highest reality. 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 The true harvest of my daily life is somewhat as intangible and indescribable as the tints of morning or evening. It is a little stardust caught, a segment of the rainbow which I have clutched. Henry David Thoreau, Walden, or Life in the Woods. Passage highlighted in one of the books found with Chris McCandless's remains. Alright, so that's from our old friend, Henry David Thoreau. And I think... What I'm getting out of this is that, like, the sweetest parts of life are the parts that you can't anticipate. 
the highest reality, the true harvest of my daily life is somewhat as intangible and indescribable as the twin the tints of morning or evening that like the meaning of life is in the living of it itself. I know that's a little bit complex, but you guys are smart. You get it. Okay. On January 4th, 1993, this writer received an unusual letter pinned in a shaky, anachronistic script that suggested an elderly author. To whom it may concern, the letter began, I would like to get a copy of the magazine that carried the story of the young man, Alex McCandless, dying in Alaska. I would like to write the one that investigated the incident. I drove him from Salton City, California, in March 1992, to Grand Junction, Colorado. I left Alex there to hitchhike to South Dakota. He said he would keep in touch. The last I heard from him was a letter the first week in April 1992. On our trip, we took pictures. Me with the camcorder and Alex with his camera. If you have a copy of that magazine, please send me the cost of that magazine. I understand he was hurt. If so, I would like to know how he was injured, for he always carried enough rice in his backpack, and he had Arctic clothes and plenty of money. Sincerely, Ronald A. Franz. Please do not make these facts available to anybody till I know more about his death, for he was not just the common wayfarer. Please believe me. The magazine that Franz requested was the January 1993 issue of Outside, which featured a cover story about the death of Chris McCandless. His letter had been addressed to the offices of Outside in Chicago. Because I had written the McCandless piece, it was forwarded to me. McCandless made an indelible impression on a number of people during the course of his hegira, most of whom spent only a few days in his company, a week or two at most. Okay, so I looked up a hegira, and it is a word that describes Muhammad's leaving from Mecca um, to, I believe, Medina to start, like, the first community of Muslims. So it seems to describe, like, a journey away from the Holy Land into community so i think he used this word to be like it's chris's move away from nature and into society nobody however was more was affected more powerfully by his or her brief contact with the boy than ronald franz who was 80 years old when their paths intersected in january 1992 after McCandless bid farewell to Jane Burris at the Salton City Post Office, he hiked into the desert and set up camp in a break of creosote on the edge of the Anza Borrego Desert State Park. Hard to the east is the Salton Sea, a placid ocean in miniature. Its surface, more than 200 feet below sea level, created in 1905 by a monumental engineering snafu. Not long after a canal was dug from the Colorado River to irrigate rich farmland in the Imperial Valley, the river breached its banks during a series of major floods, carved a new channel, and began to gush unabated into the Imperial Valley Canal. For more than two years, the canal inadvertently diverted virtually all of the river's prodigious flow into the Salton Sink. Water surged across the once dry floor of the sink, inundating farms and settlements, eventually drowning 400 square miles of desert and giving birth to a landlocked ocean. Only 50 miles from the limousines and exclusive tennis clubs and lush green fairways of Palm Springs, 
The west shore of the Salton Sea had once been the site of immense real estate speculation. Lavish resorts were planned, grand subdivisions platted, but little of the promised development ever came to pass. These days, most of the lots remain vacant and are gradually being reclaimed by the desert. Tumbleweeds scuttle down Salton City's broad, desolate boulevards. Sun-bleached for sale signs line the curbs and paint peels from uninhabited buildings. A placard in the window of the Salton Sea Realty and Development Company declares, Closed. Only the rattle of the wind interrupts the spectral quiet. Away from the lake shore, the land rises gently and then abruptly to form the desiccated, phantasmal badlands of, of Anza Borrego. The Bajada beneath the badlands is open country cut by steep-walled arroyos. Here, on a low, sun-scorched rise dotted with choyas and indigo bushes and 12-foot acatillo stems, McCandless slept on, on the sand under a tarp hung from a creosote branch. When he needed provisions, he would hitch or walk the four miles into town, where he bought rice and filled his plastic water jug at the market liquor store slash post office, a beige stucco building that serves as the cultural nexus of Greater Salton City. One Thursday in mid-January, McCandless was hitching back out of the Bajada after filling his jug when an old man, name of Ron Franz, stopped to give him a ride. "'Where's your camp?' Franz inquired. "'Out past, oh my God, hot springs,' McCandless replied. "'I've lived in these parts six years now, and I've never heard of any place goes by that name. Show me how to get there.'" They drove for a few minutes down the Borrego Salton Seaway, and then McCandless told him to turn left into the desert, where a rough 4 by 4 track twisted down a narrow wash. After a mile or so, they arrived at a bizarre encampment, where some 200 people had gathered to spend the winter living out of their vehicles. The community was beyond the fringe, a vision of post-apocalypse America. There were families sheltered in cheap tent trailers, aging hippies in day-glow vans, Charles Manson lookalikes sleeping in rusted-out Studebakers that hadn't turned over since Eisenhower was in the White House. A substantial number of those present were walking around buck-naked. At the center of the camp, water from a geothermal well had been piped into a pair of shallow, steaming pools lined with rocks and shaded by palm trees. Oh my god, hot springs. McCandless, however, wasn't living right at the springs. He was camped by himself another half-mile out in the Bajada. Franz drove Alex the rest of the way, chatted with him there for a while, and then returned to town where he lived alone, rent-free, in return for managing a ramshackle apartment building. Franz, a devout Christian, had spent most of his adult life in the army stationed in Shanghai and Okinawa. On New Year's Eve 1957, while he was overseas, his wife and only child were killed by a drunk driver in an automobile accident. Franz's son had been due to graduate from medical school the following June. Franz started hitting the whiskey. Hard. Six months later, he managed to pull himself together and quit drinking cold turkey. But he never really got over the loss. To solve his loneliness in the years after the accident, he started unofficially adopting indigent Okinawan boys and girls, eventually taking 14 of them under his wing, paying for the oldest to attend medical school in Philadelphia and another to study medicine in Japan. When Franz met McCandless, his long-dominant paternal impulses were kindled anew. He couldn't get the young man out of his mind. The boy had said his name was Alex. He declined to give a surname, 
and that he came from West Virginia. He was polite, friendly, well-groomed. He seemed extremely intelligent, Fran states in an exotic brogue that sounds like a blend of Scottish, Pennsylvania Dutch, and Carolina drawl. I thought he was too nice to be living by that hot springs with those nudists and drunks and dope smokers. After attending church that Sunday, Franz decided to talk to Alex about how he was living. Somebody needed to convince him to get an education and a job and make something of his life. When he returned to McCandless's camp and launched into the self-improvement pitch, though, McCandless cut him off abruptly. Look, Mr. Franz, he declared, you don't need to worry about me. I have a college education. I'm not destitute. I'm living like this by choice. And then, despite his initial prickliness, the young man warmed to the old-timer, and the two engaged in a long conversation. Before the day was out, they had driven into Palm Springs in Franz's truck, had a meal at a nice restaurant, and taken a ride on the tramway to the top of San Jacinto Peak, at the bottom of which McCandless stopped to unearth a Mexican serape and some other possessions he'd buried for safekeeping a year earlier. Over the next few weeks, McCandless and Franz spent a lot of time together. The younger man would regularly hitch into Salton City to do his laundry and barbecue steaks at Franz's apartment. He confided that he was biding his time until spring, when he intended to go to Alaska and embark on an ultimate adventure. He also turned the tables and started lecturing the grandfatherly figure about the shortcomings of his sedentary existence, urging the 80-year-old to sell most of his belongings, move out of the apartment, and live on the road. Franz took these harangues in stride and in fact delighted in the boy's company. An accomplished leather worker, Franz taught Alex the secrets of his craft. For his first project, McCandless produced a tooled leather belt on which he created an artful pictorial record of his wanderings. Alex is inscribed at the belt's left end, and then the initials CJM for Christopher Johnson McCandless frame a skull and crossbones. Across the strip of cowhide, one sees a rendering of a two-lane blacktop, a no-U-turn sign, a thunderstorm producing a flash flood that engulfs a car, a hitchhiker's thumb, an eagle, the Sierra Nevada, salmon cavorting in the Pacific Ocean, the Pacific Coast Highway from Oregon to Washington, the Rocky Mountains, Montana wheat fields, a South Dakota rattlesnake, Westerberg's house in Carthage, the Colorado River, a gale in the Gulf of, Col of California, a canoe beached beside a tent, Las Vegas, the initials TCD, Morro Bay, Astoria, and at the buckle end, finally, the letter N, presumably representing North. Executed with remarkable skill and creativity, this belt is as astonishing as any artifact Chris McCandless left behind. Franz grew increasingly fond of McCandless. God, he was a smart kid, the old man rasps in a barely audible voice. He directs his gaze at a patch of sand between his feet as he makes this declaration. Then he stops talking. Bending stiffly from the waist, he wipes some imaginary dirt from his pant leg. His ancient joints crack loudly in the awkward silence. More than a minute passes before Franz speaks again, squinting at the sky. He begins to reminisce further about the time he spent in the youngster's company. Not infrequently during their visits, Franz recalls, McCandless's face would darken with anger, and he'd fulminate about his parents or politicians or the endemic idiocy of mainstream American life. Worried about alienating the boy, Franz said little during such outbursts and let him rant. 
One day in early February, McCandless announced that he was splitting for San Diego to earn more money for his Alaska trip. You don't need to go to San Diego, France protested. I'll give you money if you need some. No, you don't get it. I'm going to San Diego, and I'm leaving on Monday. Okay, I'll drive you there. Don't be ridiculous, McCandless scoffed. I need to go anyway, France lied, to pick up some leather supplies. McCandless relented. He struck his camp, stored most of his belongings in France's apartment. The boy didn't want to schlep his sleeping bag or backpack around the city. And then rode with the old man across the mountains to the coast. It was raining when Franz dropped McCandless at the San Diego waterfront. It was a very hard thing for me to do, Franz says. I was sad to be leaving him. On February 19th, McCandless called Franz, collect, to wish him a happy 81st birthday. McCandless remembered the date because his own birthday had been seven days earlier. He had turned 24 on February 12th. During his phone call, he also confessed to France that he was having trouble finding work. On February 28th, he mailed a postcard to Jan Burris. Hello, it reads. I've been living on streets of San Diego for the past week. First day I got here, it rained like hell. The missions here suck and I'm, going, and I'm getting preached to death. Not much happening in terms of jobs, so I'm heading north tomorrow. I've decided to head for Alaska no later than May 1st, but I've got to raise a little cash to outfit myself. May go back and work for a friend I have in South Dakota if he can use me. Don't know where I'm headed now, but I'll write when I get there. Hope all's well with you. Take care, Alex. On March 5th, McCandless sent another card to Burris and a card to Franz as well. The missive to Burris says, Greetings from Seattle. I'm a hobo now. That's right, I'm riding the rails now. What fun. I wish I had jumped trains earlier. The rails have some drawbacks, however. First is that one becomes absolutely filthy. Second is that one must tangle with these crazy bowls. I was sitting in a hot spot, a hot, in a hot shot in L.A. when a bull found me with his flashlight about 10 p.m. Get out of here before I kill ya, screamed the bull. I got out and saw that he had drawn his revolver. He interrogated me at gunpoint, then growled, If I ever see you around this train again, I'll kill ya. Hit the road. What a lunatic. I got the last laugh when I caught the same train five minutes later and rode it all the way to Oakland. I'll be in touch. Alex. A week later, Franz's phone rang. It was the operator, he says, asking if I would accept a collect call from someone named Alex. When I heard his voice, it was like sunshine after a month of rain. Will you come pick me up? McCandless asked. Yes, where in Seattle are you? Ron, McCandless laughed. I'm not in Seattle, I'm in California, just up the road from you, in Coachella. Unable to find work in the rainy northwest, McCandless had hopped a series of freight trains back to the desert. In Colton, California, he was discovered by another bull and thrown in jail. Upon his release, he had hitchhiked to Coachella, just southeast of Palm Springs, and called Franz. As soon as he hung up the phone, Franz rushed off to pick McCandless up. We went to a sizzler, where I filled him up with steak and lobster, Franz recalls, and then we drove back to Salton City. McCandless said that he would be staying only a day, just long enough to wash his clothes and load his backpack. He'd heard from Wayne Westerberg that a job was waiting for him at the grain elevator in Carthage, and he was eager to get there. The date was March 11th, a Wednesday. Franz offered to take McCandless to Grand Junction, Colorado, which was the farthest he could drive without missing an appointment in Salton City the following Monday. To Franz's surprise and great relief, McCandless accepted the offer without argument. Before departing, McCandless gave, Franz gave McCandless a machete, 
an Arctic parka, a collapsible fishing pole, and some other gear for his Alaska undertaking. Thursday at daybreak, they drove out of Salton City in Franz's truck. In Bullhead City, they stopped to close out McCandless's bank account and to visit Charlie's trailer, where McCandless had stashed some books and other belongings, including the journal photo album from his canoe trip down the Colorado. McCandless then insisted on buying Franz lunch at the Golden Nugget Casino across the river in Laughlin. Recognizing McCandless, a waitress at the Nugget gushed, Alex! Alex, you're back! Franz had purchased a video camera before the trip, and he paused now and then along the way to record the sights. Although McCandless usually ducked away whenever Franz pointed the lens in his direction, some brief footage exists of him standing impatiently in the snow above Bryce Canyon. Okay, let's go, he protests the camcorder after a few moments. There's a lot more ahead, Ron. Wearing jeans and a wool sweater, McCandless looks tan, strong, healthy. Franz reports that it was a pleasant, if hurried, trip. Sometimes we'd drive for hours without saying a word, he recalls. Even when he was sleeping, I was happy just knowing he was there. At one point, Franz dared to make a special request of McCandless. My mother was an only child, he explained. So was my father, and I was their only child. Now that my own boy's dead, I'm the end of the line. When I'm gone, my family will be finished. Gone forever. So I asked Alex if I could adopt him, if he would be my grandson. McCandless, uncomfortable with the request, dodged the question. Talk about it when I get back from Alaska, Ron. On March 14th, Franz left McCandless on the shoulder of Interstate 70 outside Grand Junction and returned to Southern California. McCandless was thrilled to be on his way north. Well, that's what we get for living in society, isn't it? We'll continue on. Nope, just kidding. We're moving rooms. Oh, nope, it stopped. Okay. McCandless was thrilled to be on his way north, and he was relieved as well, relieved that he had again evaded the impending threat of human intimacy, of friendship, and all the messy emotional baggage that comes with it. He had fled the claustrophobic confines of his family. He had successfully kept Jane Jan Burris and Wayne Westerberg at arm's length, flitting out of their lives before anything was expected of him. And now he'd slipped painlessly out of Ron Franz's life as well. Painlessly, that is, from McCandless's perspective, although not from the old man's. One can only speculate about why Franz became so attached to McCandless so quickly, but the affection he felt was genuine, intense, and unalloyed. Franz had been living a solitary existence for many years. He had no family and few friends. A disciplined, self-reliant man, he got along remarkably well despite his age and solitude. When McCandless came into his world, however, the boy undermined the old man's meticulously constructed defenses. Franz relished being with McCandless, but their burgeoning friendship also reminded him how lonely he'd been. The boy unmasked the gaping void in Franz's life, even as he helped fill it. When McCandless departed as suddenly as he'd arrived, Franz found himself deeply and unexpectedly hurt. In early April, a long letter arrived in Franz's post office box bearing a South Dakota postmark. Hello, Ron, it says. Alex here. I've been working up here in Carthage, South Dakota for nearly two weeks now. I arrived up here three days after we parted in Grand Junction, Colorado. I hope that you make it back to Salton City without too many problems. I enjoy working here and things are going well. The weather is not very bad and many days are surprisingly mild. 
Some of the farmers are even already going out into their fields. It must be getting rather hot down there in Southern California by now. I wonder if you ever got a chance to get out and see how many people showed up for the March 20, 20th Rainbow Gathering there at the Hot Springs. It sounds like it might have been a lot of fun, but I don't think you really understand these kinds of people very well. I will not be here in South Dakota very much longer. My friend Wayne wants me to stay working at the grain elevator through May and then go combining with him the entire summer, but I have my soul set entirely on my Alaskan odyssey, and I hope to be on my way no later than April 15th. That means I will be leaving here before very long, so I need you to send any more mail I may have received to the return address listed below. Ron, I really enjoy all the help you have given me and the times we have spent together. I hope that you will not be too depressed by our parting. It may be a very long time before we see each other again. But providing that I but providing that I get through this Alaskan deal in one piece, you will be hearing from me again in the future. I'd like to repeat the advice I gave you before, and that I think you really should make a radical change in your lifestyle and begin to boldly do the things which you may previously never have thought of doing, or been too hesitant to attempt. So many people live within unhappy circumstances and yet will not take the initiative to change their situation because they are conditioned to a life of security, conformity, and conservatism. All of which may appear to give one peace of mind, but in reality nothing is more damaging to the adventurous spirit within a man than a secure future. The very basic core of a man's living spirit is his passion for adventure. The joy of life comes from our encounters with new experiences, and hence there is no greater joy than to have an endlessly changing horizon, for each day to have a new and different sun. If you want to get more out of life, Ron, you must lose your inclination for monotonous security and adopt a helter-skelter style of life that will at first appear to you to be crazy. But once you become accustomed to such a life, you will see its full meaning and its incredible beauty. And so, Ron, in short, get out of Salton City and hit the road. I guarantee you will be very glad you did, but I fear that you will ignore my advice. You think that I am stubborn, but you are even more stubborn than me. You had a wonderful chance on your drive back to see one of the greatest sights on earth, the Grand Canyon, something every American should see at least once in his life. But for some reason, incomprehensible to me, you wanted nothing but to bolt for home as quickly as possible, right back to the same situation which you see day after day after day. I fear you will follow this same inclination in the future, and thus fail to discover all the wonderful things that God has placed around us to discover. Don't settle down and sit in one place. Move around. Be nomadic. Make each day a new horizon. You are still going to live a long time, Ron, and it would be a shame if you did not take the opportunity to revolutionize your life now and move into an entirely new realm of experience. You are wrong if you think joy emanates only or principally from human relationships. God has placed it all around us. It is in everything and anything we might experience. We just have to have the courage to turn against our habitual lifestyle and engage in unconventional living. My point is that you do not need me or anyone else around to bring this new kind of light in your life. It is simply waiting there for you to grasp it. And all you have to do is reach for it. The only person you are fighting is yourself and your stubbornness to engage in new circumstances. Ron, I really hope that as soon as you can, you will get out of Salton City. Put a little camper on the back of your pickup and start seeing some of the great work that God has done here in the American West. You will see things and meet people, and there is much to learn from them. 
You must do it economy style, no motels. Do your own cooking. As a general rule, spend as little as possible, and you will enjoy it much more immensely. I hope that the next time I see you, you will be a new man with a vast array of new adventures and experiences behind you. Don't hesitate or allow yourself to make excuses. Just get out and do it. Just get out and do it. You will be very, very glad that you did. Take care, Ron. Alex. Please write back to Alex McCandless, Madison, South Dakota, 57042. Astoundingly, the 81-year-old man took the brash 24-year-old vagabond's advice to heart. Franz placed his furniture and most of his other possessions in a storage locker, bought a GMC Duravan, and outfitted it with bunks and camping gear. Then he moved out of his apartment and set up camp in the Vajada. Franz occupied McCandless's old campsite, just past the hot springs. He arranged some rocks to create a parking area for the van, transplanted prickly pears and indigo bushes for landscaping, and then he sat out in the desert, day after day after day, awaiting his young friend's return. Ronald Franz, this is not his real name, at his request I have given him a pseudonym, looks remarkably sturdy for a man in his ninth decade who has survived two heart attacks. Nearly six feet tall with thick arms and a barrel chest, he stands erect, his shoulders unbowed. His ears are large beyond the proportions of his other features, as are his gnarled, meaty hands. When I walk into his camp in the desert and introduce myself, he is wearing old jeans and an immaculate white t-shirt decorative tooled belt of his own creation, white socks, scuffed black loafers. His age is betrayed only by the creases across his brow and a proud, deeply pitted nose, over which a purple filigree of veins unfolds like a finely wrought tattoo. A little more than a year after McCandless's death, he regards the world through wary blue eyes. To dispel Franz's suspicion, I hand him an assortment of photographs I'd taken on a trip to Alaska the previous summer, during which I'd retraced McCandless's terminal journey on the Stampede Trail. The first several images in the stack are landscapes, shots of the surrounding bush, the overgrown trail, distant mountains, the Shoshana River. Franz studies them in silence, occasionally nodding when I explain what they depict. He seems grateful to see them. When he comes to the pictures of the bus in which the boy had died, however, he stiffens abruptly. Several of these images show McCandless's belongings inside the derelict vehicle. As soon as Franz realizes what he is seeing, his eyes mists over. He thrusts the throatos back at me without examining the rest. And the old man walks away to compose himself as I mumble a lame apology. Franz no longer lives at McCandless's campsite. A flash flood washed the makeshift road away, so he moved 20 miles out toward the Borrego Badlands, where he camps beside an isolated stand of cottonwoods. Oh my god, Hot Springs is gone now, too, bulldozed and plugged with concrete by order of the Imperial Valley Health Commission. County officials say they eliminated the springs out of concern that bathers might become gravely ill from virulent microbes thought to flourish in the thermal pools. That sure could have been true, says the clerk at the Salton City store, but most people think they bulldozed him because the springs was starting to attract too many hippies and drifters and scum like that. Good riddance, you ask me. For more than eight months after he said goodbye to McCandless, Franz remained at his campsite, scanning the road for the approach of a young man with a large pack, waiting patiently for Alex to return. During the last week of 1992, the day after Christmas, he picked up two hitchhikers on his way back from a trip to Salton City to check his mail. One fellow was from Mississippi, I think. The other was a Native American, Franz remembers. 
On the way out to the hot springs, I started telling them about my friend Alex and the adventure he'd set out to have in Alaska. Suddenly, the Indian youth interrupted. Was his name Alex McCandless? Yes, that's right, so you've met him then. I hate to tell you this, mister, but your friend is dead. Rose to death up there on the tundra. Just read about it in an outdoor magazine. In shock, friends interrogated the hitchhiker at length. The details rang true. His story added up. Something had gone horribly wrong. The canvas would never be coming back. When Alex left for Alaska, Franz remembers, I prayed. I asked God to keep his finger on the shoulder of that one. I told him that boy was special. But he let Alex die. So on December 26, when I learned what happened, I renounced the Lord. I withdrew my church membership and became an atheist. I decided I couldn't believe in a God who would let something that terrible happen to a boy like Alex. After I dropped off the hitchhikers, Franz continues, I turned my van around, drove back to the store, and bought a bottle of whiskey. Then I went out into the desert and drank it. I wasn't used to drinking, so it made me sick. Hoped it'd kill me, but it didn't. Just made me real, real sick. And that is the end of chapter six. And I forgot how sad that chapter makes me. It's devastating. Oh, I thought of a question to ask you guys from Alex's letter, which I thought was really beautiful, where he's telling Ron um, all of the things that he thinks he should do. You are wrong if you think joy emanates only or principally from human relationships, he says on uh, page 57. God has placed it all around us. It is in everything and anything we might experience. We just have to have the courage to turn against our habitual lifestyle and engage in unconventional living. So in addition to the questions I asked you at the beginning of the chapter, I want to know, like, what small pieces of joy outside of human relationships have you guys experienced since leaving school? Like, where have you found, like, little sparks of beauty and little sparks of joy I think that that's something that will really benefit us all to share. And if you don't have one yet, start looking. I'm going to give you guys um, a full day uh, until the next episode. So I'll have the next episode out on Wednesday, just so you have enough time to complete your assignment. So the Google form is on Google Classroom. Look for some little eminence of joy. That's your homework.